This is episode four of the Bookswell podcast. I'm Cody Sisko, and I'm here with Rochelle Youssef. Hi. Irene Yoon. Hello. And Sarah Labrie. Hello. Welcome back. Thanks. Hi. <laughs> it's been a busy couple weeks. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. So we're trying to breathe. We're trying to put our thoughts in order, and we're going to talk about some books. Um, I have an update on um, something I'm reading from the past couple podcasts where we mentioned um, Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James. I have started it. It is a long book. I have not finished, Mm -hmm. but I'm enjoying it and being surprised by it in a number of ways. It is kind of weirdly hallucinatory and choppy in a way that I didn't expect, but it's also super queer. And that's something that just didn't kind of... um, that didn't register for me before, so like that was a nice surprise, uh, and I'm enjoying it. But it's long, so you know, no more updates than that for me. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I keep starting books and then putting them to the side. So I finally was like, I'm just gonna read some like fluffy science fiction, and I love it, and it's so good. I'm reading Blake Crouch's Recursion. Um, some of you guys might have read Dark Matter, which was his really big book from a few years ago about the multiverse, and this is just like my sweet spot of like like amateur theoretical physics, like crammed into like a love story and like a melodrama. It's just so easy and fun, and I I think everyone should read it. That sounds great. I, I Dark Matter has been on my list for a long time, and I haven't picked it up, but now now that one is too. Oh, yeah. Recursion. Recursion. Yeah, the premise is that um, this woman creates a technology that allows you to travel back into a memory and live your life forward from that point on. And wow. yeah, it, it, you know, havoc is wrought from that point <laughs> going on. But it's, it's really cool. It's interesting how so many authors sort of become obsessed with this idea of memory. I finished um, Mem by Bethany Morrow, and the entire conceit of that book is that you can extract a memory which becomes alive, and you can sort of see that memory play out in the body of a duplicate copy of yourself. Mm. Um, But it seems to, that idea of the memory seems to animate a lot of writers. That's interesting. I, not a book, but it reminds me of Dollhouse, the series by uh, Joss Whedon, love which I love. Love, love, love. Freaked me out. Probably like the scariest show I've ever watched. Just the idea that like you cannot be you anymore, and like what is you, and memory, and identity, and, and but yeah, super, super interesting uh, series if you haven't looked into it. But um, very scary, the idea of memory and like playing around with that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah how it's like a natural form of time travel and like the conceit of this book and this is something that I've tried to write about in the past and I think about all the time because we don't actually understand what time is Mm -hmm. because obviously it's it's relative so it seems like if if you were big enough or there was a place you could stand that was far back enough you'd be able to see every moment happening all together right because time depends on where you are and your gravity um, you're welcome for that lesson. <laughs> You've been deep in this book for a while. I've been deep in this world for a while because I really tried to write a book about it and failed miserably. And now I just want to read all of the books about it that are actually good. Um, and there's also a series called Russian Doll that's like about a similar thing. It's like the same idea, like executed uh, visually, which is just really cool. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting with like the idea of like recursion, was it? Like the idea that you go back to a memory and then you, I guess, change as a result of it because you get to relive this experience and make, I'm assuming, different choices <laughs> than you made the first time around. Um, because actually, I mean, I also am like obsessed with memory. <laughs> I've written a lot about that too. But one of the really interesting things about like episodic memory is that like the more you revisit it, actually, the more it changes, right? Like memory is extremely malleable. And so there's no... Like every time you remember something, you know, like different like synapses are firing, right? Like different, like, you know, things are being activated. And so things tend to shift and morph in your own conception of Mm -hmm. a past event in and of itself. So it's, yeah, it's interesting to think about all the different players (laughs) that could be kind of like live wires for like crazy things happening. (laughs) I think um, not just facts change in that memory, but also like emotional tone. So you can like relive a moment in your life that maybe was more painful Mm -hmm. and it becomes less so, or you, you know, see it a little bit through kind of rose colored past viewing glasses. Right, right. Yeah. Or it gets darker. Right. Yeah. The new Michael and Dodge book is about that. It's called Warlight and it's about mm-hmm. it's it takes place in post war London and it's about a, a kid whose mom goes off to be a spy um, for London and he's constantly revisiting this moment that she left and trying to figure out why and and it ends up swallowing him alive mm-hmm. because he mm-hmm. just can't let go of this memory but he can't fix it. He never gets answers. Yeah, and, it, and there's a way that, like, how we apply what we learn in our adulthood to our childhoods that can change how we think about them. You know, growing up maybe sheltered, um, you might not be aware of some of the things going on around you, and then looking back, you're like, oh, shit, that was awful. <laughs> so. uh, have, you, have you read anything that was, like, on a more positive note lately? <laughs> well, I haven't really been reading <laughs> Lately, speaking of busy times, um, but I was traveling a little bit. I was up in the Bay Area and visiting some some friends, and I got to go to a, a friend's book party. Um, her novel, The Old Drift, just came out at the end of last month, too. I think quite a lot of fanfare. Mm-hmm. Sarah and I were talking about that. She, you know, Salman Rushdie wrote a book review for the oh. front page of like the New York Times book review section about her, and um, she's been getting written up and. I guess like a lot of airtime on various things. Um, uh, Namali Serpil, and and the funny thing is, that, well, not funny. I guess she's um she's one of my advisors from graduate school, and now I like oh, to cool. thank a friend. <laughs> um, so we were very excited to to pick up a copy of her novel. Um, speaking of long novels, it's rather long. It's beautiful. Um, and that's as much as I can say about it because I obviously haven't started reading it yet because we have one copy between me and my husband Gabe, and Gabe has already um has kind of started his plowing through the novel and is very much enjoying it. Um, but yeah, no, I'm really excited to get started. I actually got to edit um, her academic book and mm. so kind of excited to see if there's any. <laughs> what was the academic book about? It's called Seven Modes of Uncertainty um, and it's, it's kind of playing off of William Emson's um, uh, seven types of uncertainty, um, but like thinking through just like the role of literary uncertainty and like um, an experience of reading, right? Like what it means to create that sense of like, I guess, ethical uncertainty, both in the reader or like in a text or in a narrator or think up in characters, like right? what, what does that generate in terms of like our own, yeah. Um, so great, like a really wonderful book um, and I'm sure this one is also, so without having read it yet. <laughs> I do recommend <laughs> that everyone go check out um, The Old Drift. 
And there's there's another reason why you've been very busy lately, and we would be remiss to not mention it, is that you're preparing for the LARB USC publishing workshop. Yes, that's true. Yay. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's been really exciting. We've been putting together, I think, a great roster of speakers that are going to be coming to join us. Our very first speaker is going to be Chris Jackson, who is the publisher of One World Lit, um, and I'm really excited for that. Um, and actually, that first day is going to be pretty amazing, too. Um, uh, we're also going to have um, Jamia Wilson, who's the uh, editorial director at Feminist Press, and a number right. of really awesome people who are going to be joining us from all over the country um, and here in L.A., and so... Yeah, it's been really exciting. We're um, finishing up our application period, um, which I guess will be done by the time this airs. What's the date? Unfortunately, um, April 15th. So if people are interested, they should probably take a look at your website and maybe see if application deadline has been extended. Absolutely. That would be really fabulous. Um, we're really excited about all the applicants we've had so far. I think it's going to be great. Um, and Sarah and I will also be at the LA Times Festival of Books this Sunday yes. um, to, you know, be there if you guys want to come by and talk about or I guess it'll already have happened. It'll already have happened. Okay. Well, time travel. I know. This is like very like mind building. Um, um yeah. Maybe by then we will have seen each other at the festival but Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe by then we will have. So um yeah, so it's been pretty busy but very exciting and so I'm looking forward to the summer and to getting back to reading after this all is over. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a very busy literary time with AWP and the LA Times Festival of Books. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, the book I want to start reading is a book I bought at AWP at Powell's um, called Internment by Samira Ahmed. Oh, who wrote, yes. Who wrote Love, Hate, and Other Filters, and I loved it. Um, this is her second book. It's set um, in the not-so-distant future where there's been a ban on Muslim American citizens. Um, and I don't know if it's going to be light, but it seems like it's going to be a really good book. Um, which is interesting too, because I remember when Trump took over, that was like very much a thought I had. Um, my family were Christian Orthodox, but they're from Syria. But I think a lot of people who, um, are kind of on that kind of path don't necessarily distinguish between like Christian Arabs and Muslim Arabs. Um, so to me, it felt like very much like a possibility. So I'm really excited to read her book. And it um, will be like, because sometimes uh, if like literature is like too close to home, it can be like almost too disturbing. You're you're, you're ready for that. I'm, oh, I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> I really like, I like her. I like her writing a lot. And I think um, her first book really resonated with me, even though um, we're talking about like um, different, uh, different cultures, but very similar cultures. Um, and like really spoke to, to the teen in me, mm-hmm. um, so I'm I'm really excited to read her book, and to support her book. So Rochelle and I, I think maybe are still recuperating a little bit from our trip to AWP, which wasn't that long ago, but seems so seems far. so distant. So far, um, <laughs> it was just packed packed schedule, um, and I don't I don't think I have much to say about the official conference program. But um, the really nice thing was for about three days, I kind of got drawn into this orbit of literary events run by and organized by women of color, um, including uh, Vona Foundation and uh, Kabe Kanem and Women Who Submit. Mm -hmm. And so just for like three days, I was just like surrounded by so much talent and like really powerful um, female voices talking about um, sort of, you know, 
everything. I mean, it was the yeah. full gamut, and that was that was a really nice experience, and it was, it was nice to see. Yeah, and it's nice because we talk about, like, wanting to go to literary events but being too busy for them, so it was nice to, like, have three days where that was all you were doing. Like, you were just allowed to do it, and it wasn't, like, you skipping work or you not doing what you needed to do. It was, like, that's what I'm here to do. Yeah, and I think, I think we got, I mean, for, I think I got some people on board for coming on the podcast for interviews so like i that was that was definitely useful and helpful so we should be hearing some from them soon yeah and it's nice to get out of your like la bubble sometimes yeah yeah they can feel very insular you know it's like the same writers and the same bookstores and the same reading series and Mm -hmm. all those things are great but it's nice to break it up sometimes exactly yeah my favorite reading series happens tonight well, I have one of two favorites. Um, it's Drunken Masters, yeah. put on mm-hmm. by um, Writ Large Press and The Accomplices, and that is pretty phenomenal. They have a, a lineup tonight. The, the, the Masters, they have F. Douglas Brown, um, Mike Songskin, and Rocio Carlos. I am super excited to see them sloshed and hear what they have to say <laughs> about three up-and-coming writers. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So they get drunk and they talk about other books? They get drunk and they talk, they give a critique of three <laughs> writers who perform their work three live. Three up-and-coming writers. Yeah. yeah. They've, yeah. Read it, they've read it in advance, but yeah, the idea is that, like, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's got this great, like, community aspect to it, but also, like, it's fun, you know, which sometimes yeah. can be missing from readings, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's a lovely, fabulous concept, and, like, good for them for giving back to, like, up-and-coming, emerging writers. And I guess April is National Poetry Month? I think so. So that that's right. that's why they, they chose the theme of poetry, and they have three poets who are reading their stuff. And, I, like, after AWP, that was a lot of poetry, too. Oh, that was a lot, yeah. I'm going to close the door on poetry <laughs> for a while after this weekend. And, and then go back to my fiction roots. That's yes, right. Well, can I recommend a book of poetry? <laughs> <laughs> I brought this to remind myself. Um, the Octopus Museum by Brenda Shaughnessy. I haven't read it yet, but Brenda Shaughnessy is an amazing poet, and I stole this from the LARB offices today. That's a beautiful cover. Yeah. Isn't it gorgeous? It's beautiful, yeah. yeah. And the title, The Octopus Museum. I love that. If you're listening, the cover, the cover just looks like um, ink. Lot droplets and water, so yeah. they're all sort of wavy and beautiful, and it's orange and blue and very bright and aquatic. And you should buy the book so you can see it and take it home and put it on your coffee table. I guess that's the other thing happening this weekend, um, which I didn't even see, and so like that's my bad. But it's it's like art book mm-hmm. weekend. Mm-hmm. Also, at the same time as the Festival of Books, which I'm like, why did you do that? But whatever. Where does that happen? Um, I'm not sure. Like, I, I just learned about it today, and I don't know what I'm going to do about that information. I don't think I can do anything about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it's happening, and so listeners, hey, if you search for it, then it will have already happened. <laughs> um, we may need to rethink our schedule for the... <laughs> Or, like, L.A. just needs to calm down and have some fewer right. events. Yeah. Um, oh, I wanted to ask, has anybody heard of this book, The Collected Schizophrenia by Esme Wang? Yes. Has anyone read it? No. Someone gave it to me today, and I'm really curious about it. Did she, we talk about it, or we mentioned it? We might have mentioned it on a previous podcast. I'm not sure, though. We talked about the, the, the anthology of LGBT and mental health, and I right. think she might have had um, a piece in there Um, but her book came out and she did an event in LA sometime in the last couple months Mm. Um, yeah 
Yeah, it's, it sounds interesting. I guess she was working on some research projects it, at Stanford um, that were focused on mental illness and part of what emerged from that it, and her own um, struggles, uh, part of what emerged from that is this book. Oh, wow. So, yeah, she seems like someone who'd be fun to follow on Twitter mm-hmm. and maybe yeah. interact with. Yeah. I was also going to mention, if you're not interested in the LA Times Festival books, San Diego has a writer's festival that's happening on Saturday, which I'm also not realizing is, doesn't matter. So it's to be on Tuesday. <laughs> so forget it. So right. everyone, right now, mark your calendars for one year in the future, just knowing that like there's way too many options. That's right. <laughs> All right, I think this is a wrap. We're going to have an interview with Linnell George come up next, and then a rundown of things that are coming up in the days following the airing of this podcast to be a little less timey-wimey for everyone out there. So thanks for being here. Yay! Thanks, everyone. Thanks for George is a Los Angeles-based journalist and essayist. She has had a long career in L.A. journalism as a staff writer for both the L.A. Times and L.A. Weekly, focusing on social issues, human behavior, and identity politics, as well as visual arts, music, and literature. Her most recent book, After Image, Los Angeles Outside the Frame, is the result of years of contemplating and writing about the arts, culture, and social issues of Los Angeles, always with an emphasis on place and the identity of the people who live in or leave LA. I spoke with Linnell on a warm spring morning on the outdoor patio at Fiore Market Cafe in South Pasadena, and you can hear the neighborhood bustling around us. I'm Cody Sisko, and I'm here with Linnell George, author of After Image, and we're going to talk all about literature in L.A. Yay. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. So I, um, Your name came up this weekend. Oh, it did? I didn't know if you heard your ears burning, but um, I ran into Mike Songskin at, um, at the AWP conference. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so I got a copy of his book, and then he opened it up and showed me like exactly where you appear inside the book. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. I'm looking forward to talking. Mike is the ambassador of L.A. letters. He really is. He's like, he's like a one-man ambassador. I mean, he well, not a one-man. He's like a one-man um, promotion train for L.A. It's just wonderful. Which is great, yeah. I mean, because sometimes people's first impression of L.A. leaves out the literature part. It leaves out the book part. Yes. Hollywood and TV and movies and even just the beach kind of rise to prominence. One of the things I've been... really pleased with since I started Bookswell is to see just how um, pervasive and vibrant and different each of the pockets of literary LA are. Yes, Um, yes. So I'd love to hear more from you. Like, what's your... I guess your experience since After Image came out in diving into these different parts where uh, you came up. Interesting. I'd like to go way back because um, to answer that question. And um, I remember, I guess I was probably a preteen or very early teenager where I started to sort of discover these different literary communities around. And one of them was the Venice community that beyond Baroque community of writers and um, that was probably and and there was an old there was a bookstore called Papa Bach and on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard and they had readings it was this great old bookstore that 
it's a jumble of books, you know, things stacked up all over the place, bookstore cats, um, and they had readings also. And that was the first scene I was introduced to, I would say. Um, later, uh, there was, uh, I know, the world stage, you know, in Lemmer Park. That was a huge scene, and that's actually how I met Mike. Uh, I came out of some event. He was in the street with another writer, A.K. Tony, and they were like, Linnell George. I'm like, how do they know who I am? Because I was just, I was just starting out at the Weekly, and but there was a community there, and Kamal Daoud was part of that, that of the poet, um, and who was from the Watts Writers Workshop. So I began to kind of understand this map that was regional, but there were places people came together. So like the Beyond Baroque poets sometimes read with the world stage poets, and um, even though it wasn't a formal thing, it could be these informal, informal things. So that was sort of my introduction to uh, these different worlds in yeah. LA. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. both of those are still going strong. And yeah. I think Beyond Baroque just had an anniversary. Right, exactly. Um, and World Stage is still still going. Exactly, exactly. And moved into a new space and um, very well attended. And they're doing all kinds of wonderful things there. The um, jazz musician, um, Anthony Wilson, who has actually started turning to doing more more writing himself mm. and merging both the, the jazz and the music. He just did an event there that... Um, I think for his new album, um, Songs and Photographs. Great. Yeah. 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 I love the events that merge the different arts at the same time. Um, in After Image, I remember that you mentioned uh, CLO Gallery. Yes. And um, I had met uh, Julaine Lee, a poet whose book just came out, who had an event there, which was, um, you know, her reading her poetry, but she also brought up visual artists. They had um, oh, great. Uh, paintings and drawings displayed. Um, and the the theme that was wrapped around it was sort of um, Korean-born adoptees oh, wow. in America and their experience reconnecting on on the basis of like this feeling of um, having lost something rather than gained something. Oh wow! As a result of that, that sounds so rich. And I love when there are themed events like that that really do draw from our community. Yeah. You know and. Um, and that to me, that's the richness of L.A. And that's the thing, as you were mentioning in the beginning about, you know, literature taking a back seat. That's the stuff that gets paved over in our mm. stories about L.A. I really feel like if you live here and you participate, you know about it. But otherwise, people yeah. breezing in, they have no idea you know, yeah. that we have that that richness. Yeah. And part of um, part of what I mean, I don't know how well this is happening right now, but part of what I'd love to see is a sort of um, I don't want to say documentation, but an archiving or some sort of preservation of sort of current moment of literature going forward. And um, it was, I went to school at San Francisco State and they had the Poetry Center, which had right. tapes, right. you know, audio tapes and magnetic tapes <laughs> uh, going back to like the 50s of all these poets who, who came through and read, you know, decade after decade. And um, it seems a shame that we don't have sort of the same thing. I think maybe it's a challenge of scale. But um, yeah, I, I want to try to help make that happen a That's bit more wonderful. to preserve three cheers to you for doing that because we do need that because people people move um, people die and we lose that story you know or at least their version of that story and there's such a richness to this that has not been put on on the page yet so 
I'm yes. glad you're doing that. One of the things I noticed um, while I was reading after Image was um, the, the sort of an urgent sadness around the vanishing of the past um, and the elusiveness of trying to revisit it. Um, and I was just wondering, as I was reading it, um, you made a very deliberate choice, it seems, to not focus the story on yourself. Yeah. And that would seem to run counter to the moment <laughs> we have today, where like the selfie is the thing. That's you right. know, it's like quarter of the year, maybe a couple of years ago. Um, and I was wondering why why you chose that um, avenue toward toward the book. Thank you for asking that question. Um, no one has asked me that, and so I'm. I really did make a deliberate choice because I thought I just may be cranky. I'm. It just may be me that's feeling this way, and I wanted to see how other people felt about their lived environment. You know, is it was it just for me a function of being here? I'm a native. I've lived through a lot of change here. There's always been change. Mm -hmm. So in a one way, I thought, well, you should be used to this. You know, it's LA has always been struck like a set, you know, like, right. you know, let's just build over it. Let's do something different. But this, this felt different. And so I wanted to test that with other people. And, um, and I found as I went out, there were a lot of people feeling like I did about they were fine with that early change, but it was this, these whole, this wholesale flattening of place. Mm. That was the thing. Like when I was growing up, neighborhoods felt very distinct, and um, Venice felt very different from Silver Lake. Silver Lake felt very different from downtown. Downtown felt downtown was its own, mm. own no man's land, and kind of fascinating to me because it was different from what my parents had experienced. You know. Um, which was busy with the par uh, department stores and, and that sort of thing and movies. They When they first started dating, when they moved here from separate places, they went to movies downtown. And so that was different. But what I find now is like neighborhoods, there's the same cafe in Venice as there is in Highland Park, as there is in Mar Vista, as there is in South Pasadena, you know. So. With the crossed X logo, as you know in your book, where it's even the same iconography, which then makes it just generic and almost exactly. meaningless. But I guess it's a sign or a signal to someone. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. And so I've been thinking about um, how people come to LA, they want to renew themselves. Um, when I did an interview with um, Patrick Nathan um, for the last episode of the podcast, he talked about how LA feels like one of the um, places in the world where it is easiest to become the dream of yourself that you want. Mm -hmm. Um, paraphrasing, but um, that conflicts with what came before. If if you're you know as a person producing this dream around you in terms of your relationships and your relationship to place, um, is there a way to to come to LA to start yourself over and engage with what's there already? I feel like for a long time there was that people did come and to shed an identity and then to, to fit in to a neighborhood. They found a neighborhood that spoke to them in some way, shape, or form. So that was the way you, instead of changing, instead of the changing the place into um, what you your dream is, 
you changed yourself and found a place that fit that self. Mm. That's what I was, that's what I observed. It was even part of the literature, you know, that um, the novels, especially that I was reading about people coming here, chasing dreams. And that's the other thing. It's like, I almost, and I've said this before, and it may even be in, in one of the essays in the book, but um, this feeling of like, for me growing up, sometimes I felt like the people who were here in LA didn't turn out to be didn't turn out to be the solution. It didn't fix all the things about their lives. Mm. So you're growing up around a lot of people's disappointment and their frustration. Mm. And that that felt strange too, you know? So people sometimes would just go back or they would walk around with their grimness. Now people come and turn things into like, you know, as I write in the book about, you know, you have a, cafe in Echo Park that advertises it's just like Brooklyn like well mm. why would I need Brooklyn in Echo Park I mean I would I would like to have Echo Park in Echo Park right you know and um, but that's that was that's their workaround to make something right you know instead of being discouraged or disappointed I'll just turn it into what it is I want yeah how much is New York the problem <laughs> you know that's a good question I feel like I don't have those as many of the New York, New York, LA conversations um, on the ground. Definitely in, in print. It, you know, we're definitely reading it, and it's like every every. It seems like every month or so, there's somebody writing either about the food scene or the literary scene, and um, and being dismissive about LA, or it's riddled with cliches about LA. And I just wish. Um, that whoever that writer is would hook up with someone from here, you know, and who could kind of give them just, it would take an, you know, half hour, just like, let me just direct you a couple of places, you know, um, you know, not to just lean so heavily on these cliches about LA that really actually, A, haven't been accurate or, um, for a long time or never were accurate, so. Well, gauntlet thrown. I hope a writer out there gets in touch and we'll put that please. writer in touch with the now and see what That's comes right. of it. Please, please. I would love to do that. I want to ask, because memory um, is such a strong component of, of your writing and what you've been thinking about lately, are there any um, readings or book discussions or authors who you saw and interacted with that have stuck in your mind over the years? Oh, wow. You mean local writers who have been meaningful to me? Yes. Uh, Wanda Coleman. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I know I mentioned her already, but she was significant because there weren't, and I'm not a poet. Um, but Wanda, Wanda's poetry uh, and prose, because she also was an essayist, journalist. Um, she was just incredible because she was writing about LA in a way that I hadn't seen before, that wandered into the neighborhoods that were familiar to me, situations that were familiar, situations that weren't at all either. Not, But there was enough of that that made me think, oh, yes, I need to tell those stories. And then to see her live was just electrifying because sometimes she would, she'd get up and she'd start reading and sometimes she would begin singing. She had an incredible singing voice. So you felt like this lightning bolt went through you and um, and she was accessible. I mean, I when I first started working at the LA Weekly, I cold called her and asked her if we could have lunch and 
she said, I have a better idea. Let's go have dinner. We had Indian food one night and we sat and talked for hours. Mm. Um, but she's somebody I would definitely consider to be a mentor. And that started by seeing her read. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Um, I saw Octavia Butler read um, at Esawan and at Midnight Special, um, the old bookstore in Santa Monica, when it was in its tiny, tiny, tiny little space. Um, and I remember, actually, she didn't read. She, she talked about her books, and she was like inches away from me. I went with, to this um, event with my mother, you know, and so that was significant because my mother was the fan. She was the one that said, let's go see her, you know. Um, this black woman writing about science fiction who's from LA, you know, from Pasadena, you know, yeah. so, because uh, there was a, a, those rich reading series. I'm thinking about like, yeah, going to Beyond Baroque and going yeah. to the books, bookstores that had great people. Carolyn C., who ended up being one of my teachers at LMU, um, she was significant because one of the classes I took from her was a magazine writing class. This is before I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And one of the things she required was that we be part of Literary LA. She required that we go to readings. Yeah, okay. She required that we go to bookstores. She required that um, we check calendars to make sure that, oh, you know, there's a talk going on here or there's an ex exhibition going on there. And she felt community was incredibly important to being a writer, not just, you know, the writing was important, of course, you know, like, you know, sitting at your desk, being quiet, knowing how to tune out. But she was one of those people that required it. And then we got to see it, her move in that world. So it was different seeing your, from seeing your professor standing behind a lectern and then being with her public. Yeah. You know, and that was very, very, very significant, you know, for me to see as a young writer. You mentioned Essawan books too. Um, they just had a write-up in LitHub. I think it was an interview um, with James um, about kind of their sort of long-serving um, locus yes. for the yeah for the African American community. So important because they had books that you could not find anywhere, anywhere. And my mother, who was an English teacher, she was in that store all the time, ordering books for them, talking to them. They would hold books aside for her, knowing what her interests were. Um, they've been a good friend to me um, as a journalist, um, as well as a book buyer, and um, and as well as being an author. I mean, one of the places I had to read I wanted to read the week my book came out was Esalon because they have been so, um, this has been really important in my, in my, my life here in LA. I won't even call it my literary life, my life here in yeah. LA, you know, and I, I have followed them to several different stores, you know, as they moved and changed. Yeah. And I've written about them, you know, and. And I always know to call James and Tom if I hear something like, what's going on in the neighborhood? You know, I heard this was going on. They are, they're home base. Can I ask what you're reading right now? I am reading, what am I reading right now? Let's see. On the plane, I was reading, coming back from New Orleans in this conference, I was reading the, um, 
Lisa Brennan Jobs' book, Small Fry. Oh yeah, yeah, her memoir. Mm. I'm interested in memoirs, and it's a very, it's very intense. The book is very, very, very intense. And what I was fascinated by in this book is memory, like how memory works, and how her memory works, and how her, what her associations. Um, it's very, very much rooted in sense of place, and that's the thing that I've noted the most. The smells of the trees, the light, the way it casts on walls. And I think for her, it's that that's the stuff that triggers the the conversations or like recreating those conversations. It's once she gets a sense of what a room looks like or what you know what what their roller skating path that she and her dad looked like, you know, the route they took, then she can kind of be able to like she's able to um, recreate this memory of their relationship. So I was kind of reading it as a craft for craft, and the story, of course, is compelling. Um, also on my stack is the Lorraine Hansberry book, Amani Perry's book, and um, and Kaisa Lemon's um, Heavy. That's also on my stack. I'm trying to envision what's on my nightstand. Uh, something else I just bought too. Since After Image came out, has anything changed in terms of like, of the way readers have responded to it or the discussions that you've had? Are you rethinking anything now? That's a good question. Um, I have been encouraging people yeah, yeah. to tell their own stories. Like whenever I've done any reading or talk um, is to make sure that they write down their own stories and tell their own stories. If, they're not, if they don't think they're a writer, tell their stories about where they live, their neighborhood, their street, to other people. And what I'm finding now is people, and this is always to me a sign that a piece has worked, is that it's, it's not about me anymore. Going back to, it's not about me. Yeah. It's about, I want to see what memory that triggered, like something I've written has triggered for them. And that's what I've been the recipient of is these stories about neighborhoods and vanished places and people wanting to take me to show me something that they think is really incredible or they think is hidden LA history or things that, that we need to protect. And that's been to me like the great, um, the wealth of this book is like, like people opening up their own treasure trove of stories and realizing that they really are treasures. It's not just, oh, who cares about that story? No, people care about your story, you know, because that will make place place. You know, it like having those stories gives that, you know, allows for a richness of plays and textures, you know, back to the Lisa Brennan Jobs yeah. book where, yeah, you know, the cast of light, like I just noticed this morning, just in the, the week I've been gone, the sunlight's different. It's just different, you know, and that's seasonal and, yeah. it, and it, it's different from New Orleans sunlight and it's, so that's, that's significant. So tell us a little more about where we're sitting right now and what's going on around us. We are sitting in the Fiore Cafe in South Pasadena, which was, I guess, once a, was this a, uh, I think it was a mortuary before it became a cafe, yes. Hence the, this cover here. I wasn't getting a very ghosty vibe, but now that you <laughs> <Yes>. say it, <laughs> power of suggestion. Yes, but um, it's a beautiful garden setting we're sitting in and there's, 
two jazz guitarists playing to accompany us. And uh, I was first uh, taken to hear by um, a woman I interviewed for a story years and years ago about um, diverse, uh, working with um, diversity in LA youth. And she loved this place because she could kind of take a look out and look at the neighborhood and you know keep watch on things. But it's it's lovely and it's a theater also. Hey, you're gonna hear a lot of sounds. You hear a lot of sounds. It's active here. You can hear some parrots. <laughs> yeah, did the, did, yeah, did the parrots strafe by? Yeah, they went that way. Um, and I loved I love that chapter um, about sort of how we're sort of embedded in this fabric of wildlife. Last night, um, a possum ran right by my back door, so saw her I think waddling by, and then and then like five minutes later, she went back the other way. So yeah, I looked out one night; it was raining, and I the light I have a motion sensor lights in the backyard. And I'm like, why do they keep coming on? And I thought it was a possum. No, it's two raccoons, and it was between rain showers and I, th I think they were getting some shelter under my um, bougainvillea so that was kind of cool like oh wow they were big too yeah I love raccoons they're so cute one of them uh, came up and like was actually watching our TV from through a sliding glass door for I mean like you know 10 seconds but then yeah he was captivated <laughs> can I come in <laughs> you got some room on the got some room on the sofa yeah <laughs> Hello Intersections listeners, Shannon Egan, Bookswell contributor here, ready to give you a rundown of some exciting events still on the horizon for the end of April. I know we're all still recovering from the LA Times Festival of Books, but if you're up for an event this Tuesday, which I believe is the day this episode comes out, you should head to Book Soup at 7pm, where Jesse Valencia will be discussing and signing his new book, Keep Music Evil, the story of the Brian Jonestown Massacre. I've always wanted to learn more about Jonestown, and this book is being called the definitive work on the Jonestown Massacre and the enigmatic leader at the center of the story, Anton Newcomb. If you haven't gotten your poetry fix for the month yet, Friday, April 19th, Skylight is hosting an evening of poets at 7.30 p.m. They're highlighting two poets with very unique and interesting styles, Kenji C. Liu and Heidi Andrea Restrepo Rhodes. Lou's work explores toxic masculinity and gender norms, while Rhodes focuses on issues of colonization and inherited trauma. For history fans, I think you should check out Victoria Shore at Book Soup, April 24th at 7 p.m., discussing her new work, Midnight, Three Women at the Hour of Reckoning. This book follows three famous historical figures, Jane Austen, Mary Shelley, and Joan of Arc, at pivotal moments in their lives. I love the choice to explore these well-known women in their dark night of the soul moments. An interesting LA-centric new release is the nonfiction Thirsty, William Mulholland, California Water, and The Real Chinatown by Mark Weingarten. He'll be discussing this work Thursday, April 25th, 7 p.m. at Vromans. Weingarten's book covers an issue that is salient to all Angelinos, our rocky relationship with water and the historical attempts to harness water in this perpetually dry city. 
Finally, Saturday, April 27th is Indie Bookstore Day. What better way to celebrate than by supporting your favorite local bookstore? No matter what side of town you're on, the wonderful LA Indies have you covered. Vromans in Pasadena will have exclusive merch. Skylight in Los Feliz is doing literary trivia at 2 p.m. Chevaliers in Larchmont is bringing together more than two dozen writers for readings. And Diesel in Brentwood and Flintridge Bookstore and Coffeehouse will also have activities all day long. As always, you can get more details on these events and so many more on our Bookswell website, bookswell.club, and by following us on social media at Bookswell Club. 